So we are in Luke chapter 16. Last time we finished up with the dishonest steward. And I'm sorry Eric isn't here yet. He brought up a note from his Bible saying that all the dishonest steward did was give his commission to the landowners and didn't cost the master anything. And I disagreed with him. And I still disagree with him. However, I did find a commentary that talks about that. To recap, the idea of that commentary that says what he was doing was basically uh, giving back his commission so he didn't cost the master anything, which is why the master was pleased with it. This commentary also said that one of the things that he had been doing was gouging the tenants. One of the things I commented on was, wait a minute, a 50% commission on a crop is a very healthy commission for a manager. And this commentary said, well, what he was doing was he was gouging the tenants on their rent, charging them the more than they should have been charged, and then he was skimming off the top from the landowner. So the combination of returning what he was gouging and returning what he was skimming off the top made it that big. That's the essence of that particular comment. I don't agree with it for several reasons. God bless them. Jews are good business people. And if this guy is charging way above market rates, if you will, for rental of agricultural land, he's not going to be there very long. A little bit of skimming you can get away with, but if it gets to be too big, you lose your tenants and everything else. So if this guy is overcharging on rent for land to that extent, at some point, people are going to start to complain, they're going to go somewhere else, et cetera, et cetera. The fact that the farmers stay there and don't see anything strange about what the manager does indicates that he may be skimming a little bit from both sides, but not to that extent. The other part of it is the whole purpose of the exercise is to gain him favor with the community and with the tenants. Because remember, the tenants are rich people. They're, they're well-to-do farmers. And the object of the exercise is to ingratiate himself with those folks so that he'll be able to essentially mooch off of them after he loses his job. If his reputation is that he is gouging them and gouging the boss both, the fact that he, A, gives back what he's been gouging, and then B, oh, wait a minute, he's just lost his job. I don't think that that's going to be sufficient to buy him the favor that he's looking for. So do with that whatever you like. The commentary in your Bible is one I also found, but I don't find it particularly convincing. I think that the rents that he's charging are reasonably in line with market forces, and as I said last time, very hard to find a farmer that doesn't think that the crops have been bad and the bugs have been bad and things aren't near as good as they should be. And So the key to him getting favor 
is them thinking that he is an honest manager who realizes that things aren't that good and says, oh, I see what's going on here. That rent's really too high. Let's go ahead and back it off. That kind of an attitude would get him the kind of reception he's hoping to get. Whereas, I'll give you back what I gouged you, and I'll quit gouging the boss both, isn't going to buy him the goodwill that he's looking for. Oh, one other thing that Brad Young did mention that I didn't realize, and I don't know if this is true. I have read it now in exactly one commentary. So maybe true, maybe not. His comment was that Yeshua may be speaking against the Essenes because what the Essenes do, according to this commentary, is if you join the Essene community, you have to take all of your money and everything and put it into common. And it's then managed and doled out by the Essene community. And they regard money that is outside of the community as unrighteous. So the use of unrighteous mammon here, or unrighteous wealth, might very well be a sideways slap at the Essene community. This is according to that commentary. Moving along, we're all the way down to Luke 16, 14. Context, obviously, has been in terms of wealth. Yeshua, back in verse 10, the paragraph following the parable of the dishonest steward, talks about if you can't be trusted with worldly wealth, which is of no eternal value, you will then not be trusted with eternal wealth, which is what is of real value. And you got to decide. You can't serve God and worldly wealth both. you got to do one or the other. So that sets up verse 14, where the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. So the previous vignette says you can't serve God and money. The Pharisees hold themselves up as being exemplars of service to God. That's the image that they want to project in the community. We are the ultimate servants of God. We are holy. We are doing it right. We're on God's team. So for Yeshua to say, you can't serve God and money simultaneously, and then to say that these Pharisees are lovers of money, what he's saying is, if you're a lover of money, then you are in fact not serving God. That's the layout of the argument. The Pharisees, when they heard that, ridiculed him because the Pharisees in their own minds are A, lovers of money, and B, serving God. So for this itinerant preacher, who, by the way, is not very wealthy, to come in there and say, you can't serve God and money, is going directly at them, and they are then turning around and ridiculing him for his aphorism. Verse 15, And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And you remember back in the previous 
vignette in Luke 12, where the subject was outside and inside. They look really holy on the outside, but inside they're full of corruption. And we had all sorts of examples of outside and inside, a beautiful lawn under which is a grave, those kinds of things. So he is continuing the outside and inside metaphor here, except he's saying it differently now. He's saying, you are those who justify yourselves before men. Remember he said before that you're the ones that like greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogue and all those kinds of things. In other words, you like to be socially prominent and socially honored. And you do that by justifying yourselves before men. And remember one of the things we said last time is in order to be honored in that society, you have to appear religious because the center of everything is the temple and the synagogue and the whole society revolves around that. So in order to be anyone in that society, you have got to maintain a veneer of righteousness. And what Yeshua says then is what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, but since then the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. We've got a couple of things going on. The law and the prophets were preached up through John. After John, or actually late in John's ministry, Yeshua came on the scene and he's preaching the kingdom. So John was preaching a baptism of repentance, calling people back to Torah, calling them to live according to Moses. So Yeshua then comes and says, the kingdom is here. I mean, that's his message. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. So up until then, John is preaching Moses, Yeshua is preaching the kingdom, and these Pharisees are of the opinion that they are part of the kingdom of God. So what these Pharisees are doing is trying to force their way into the kingdom, and what Yeshua is saying is, uh-uh, it isn't going to work. But then he says in verse 17, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void, in my translation, jot or tittle usually. And what he's saying there is the kingdom, as he's preaching it, is entirely consistent with Moses and the prophets. You know the passage in Matthew. I didn't come to abolish the law. And I have heard preachers preach this, that the law was in force up to John, and then Yeshua came, and he started preaching grace in the kingdom, and everything changes. And what I read this to be is John is preaching preparation for the kingdom. Yeshua is saying the kingdom is here. I am the king. And furthermore, the laws of the kingdom haven't changed. And in the context of the Pharisees, 
what they're trying to do is shoehorn their way into the kingdom because everybody wants to be in the kingdom in that society, but they're trying to do it through the approval of other men. They're trying to do it through their social position in the community. In fact, there's a movie. There's always a movie, and I don't remember the name of it, but this snooty guy, very, very snobbish, very high class, China and silver at every meal, the best restaurants, on and on and on and on. And he's dying, but he's wealthy. So he calls up the local Catholic church and has the cardinal come by and pray for him on his deathbed. And he sits up and says, my entrance into the kingdom is assured because a prince of the church has introduced me. That's what Yeshua is talking about here. These people regard themselves, in the Catholic sense, if you will, as princes of the church, worthy establishment. And one of the things that Brian used to say, with which I kind of agree, the rabbis are expecting Ephraim to come back. And they're expecting that when Ephraim comes back, they're going to check in with the rabbis. And the Messiah is going to check in with the rabbis. And that isn't going to happen. So what I'm suggesting to you is that's what's being talked about here, about people trying to force their way into the kingdom. These folks regard themselves as princes of the church, if you will. And if we're going to have a kingdom here, it's going to come through us. We're the ones. And what Yeshua is saying is, no, no. All of your show is for men. It is not, in fact, righteous. And then we have this seemingly random thing about divorce. In verse 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. To my way of thinking and reading, this is just flopped in there. Commentary that goes with my Bible program says, and again, I have not checked this. I don't know what's true or not, but it's what the commentary says. Do with it as you see fit. There is a practice in Islam that prostitution is illegal. So the way they run houses of prostitution is Muslims are allowed multiple wives. So a Muslim who wants to visit one of those houses goes in, they perform a marriage and conduct their business. As I say, it's a business doing pleasure with you. So they go in there and conduct their business and then he divorces her. So everything is religiously correct. He hasn't messed with a prostitute, he hasn't committed adultery, everything is okay. What this commentary says is that that kind of shenanigan was also common among the Pharisees at this time. You all know the laws of divorce in Judaism, have been around long enough. Moses allows writing a certificate of divorce. So what the commentary says is these guys would 
divorce their wives for trivial reasons, go off and shack up with somebody else for a while, and then maybe divorce her and move on to somebody else. The commentary I'm reading says that's why that's in here right now, because what he's telling the Pharisees is this practice that you guys engage in, you ain't following the law. And as I say, I don't know about the culture at that time if that comment is correct. I just don't know the answer to that. I'm just telling you what the commentary says. I do know that that's how Muslims behave. That I know of from a number of sources. So the idea that Pharisees, who are hypocrites, that's what we got back in chapter 12, inside and outside, they look good on the outside, but inside they're totally corrupt. So I could see the possibility of this commentary being correct. So I'm all the way down now to Lazarus and the rich man. We're still talking about money. This whole chapter, chapter 16, is talking about money in various contexts. So verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Several things here. I heard a priest in a sermon one time say, well, all right, what the deal was is in these ostensibly rich places, when your hands got greasy, you wiped them off with a piece of fresh bread and you tossed the bread. (laughs) Bread was cheaper than linen, cheaper than textiles or something like that. So they'd take a piece of fresh bread and wipe the grease off their hands and then just pitch the bread. I have no idea whether that's true. It's simply something that a preacher that I was listening to one time said. One of the things that I am told you used to see in Jerusalem and in Israel after 1948 is you would walk through town and you would see hanging on a fence a bag with bread in it. What that was is a lot of the Jews who had come to Israel after the Holocaust and so forth came from places where actual starvation was a real thing. So when they had bread that had gone stale, they got a fresh loaf of bread, what they'd do is they'd take the old bread and they'd hang it out someplace where if somebody was that desperate and that hungry, he could grab that loaf of bread and have something to eat. And quite frankly, I do something similar, except with me as chickens. I bake bread every Friday for Shabbat. Well, we don't finish the loaf. Our next door neighbors have chickens. So every Thursday, as they walk by, I say, hey, and I give them the remainder of the loaf for their chickens. And sometimes I am told that they eat it themselves, but I don't ask and I don't tell. And it's still perfectly good bread. It's just I'm making a new loaf. So I'm not going to finish that one. So it's usually about a third of the loaf goes to the chickens and they, I'm told, give some to their dog. The dog will not pass our house without hoping that we're giving them bread. 
So anyway, back to Lazarus. The idea that he would hang around a wealthy household to get scraps is unremarkable. I'm not saying that the wiping your hands on the bread would have been what he got, but he certainly would have gotten leftovers and stuff like that. Verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. You could mistakenly take this as being a teaching that poverty is virtuous and wealth is not. That's not correct. This is in the context of the Pharisees who are lovers of wealth and are in fact not righteous. So the idea that a rich man is automatically destined for hell is not correct, or that a poor man is automatically destined for the bosom of Abraham is also not generally correct. It's a parable talking to the Pharisees who are lovers of money. Because one of the things that God does through Moses is he motivates us with wealth. He says, if you follow my law and you're faithful to me and you stay in covenant with me, I will bless you and your crops won't fail and your animals will not miscarry and you'll lend to others and you won't be a borrower and just on and on and on. In other words, what he's saying is you'll have wealth in abundance. So the idea of wealth in abundance per se is not a problem. It's a problem in the context here of the Pharisees. So anyway, you have Abraham and Lazarus and this rich man all in what the Greek here is, is Hades. They're all there. But the place is separated into two parts. You got the parts where the righteous are, and you got the parts where the unrighteous are. Well, let me read it again. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. I see them both in Sheol, the pit, until such time as the resurrection. And the poster child for that is Samuel. Remember when Saul goes and consults the witch at Endor? And she talks to Samuel. And Samuel says, why did you wake me up? I am sleeping with my fathers. I don't see this as heaven and hell. It's sort of the cheap seats in the first class. Smoking section and non-smoking. Rich man's in the smoking section. Abraham and Lazarus are in the non-smoking section. Do with that whatever you like. Because one of the things that most Christian theology sees is one of the things that Christ did as he died is he went down to Hades. 
and opened the door and brought up all the righteous with him. That's fairly standard Christian theology. It's not scriptural, though, except that in Colossians it says he went down and freed the captives. So do with that whatever you like. This would have been in a pre-crucifixion, pre-resurrection, pre-everything context where he's talking to Pharisees. So their theology, which Scripture supports, is the righteous dead are sleeping with their fathers. They all go down to the same place, but at some point they get separated and some stay there and some come up. The question was, why Abraham? Why not Plato or Buddha or David or somebody? Abraham is, A, the father of them all. And Abraham in Jewish theology is quintessentially righteous. As I say, my reading of this is they're both in the same place, but one's in the smoking section and the other one is in the non-smoking section. The question is whether or not this is a parable or whether this is something that actually happens. And short answer is I don't know the answer to that either. So where am I here? 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to there may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Notice he calls him child. In other words, Abraham is the father. Now, this remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. This is in the context of the Pharisees who are lovers of money and in fact are not righteous. So what it's being said here is, hey, Pharisees, in this life you have it pretty good. You get the best seats in the synagogue, people greet you, you're well off, you're wearing fine clothes, all that kind of stuff. But understand that all of this stuff that you are so pleased and proud with is not going to go with you when you leave. I'm saying this fairly strongly because one way you can read this is rich people get all their good stuff in this life and in next life it's going to really be rough and people who are suffering in this life are really going to be rewarded in the next. And I don't believe that's what this is saying. And that's why I keep hammering this because I have heard people teach that. What Abraham says is A, you don't deserve any water. And B, if I thought you did, I couldn't do it anyway. Verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, where I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. The idea is Abraham send Lazarus to talk to my brothers to get them to straighten out so that they don't wind up here with me. He has one good character trait. He loves his family. They know Lazarus personally. 
They don't know Abraham personally. They simply know him as a character. So if Lazarus comes back that they know is dead, then, oh, okay, as opposed to this guy that comes back and says, I'm Abraham. How do we authenticate him? Comment was, does the number five here refer to the Torah? That's a good observation. I don't know the answer to that. Certainly you could work a teaching up around that. I'm not sure if that's what he meant, but certainly we're talking in the context of the Torah because he has said that not one stroke of the Torah is going to be done away with. So the idea of our brothers may in fact be symbolic. Good catch. 27 again now. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. Several things here. First off, the obvious reference to the resurrection. And lots of Pharisees did change, but a lot of them didn't. So one returning from the dead was not sufficient to get most of them turned around. That's thing one. Thing two is one of the things that the Pharisees constantly do during Yeshua's ministry is demand a sign. Show us a sign. Give us a sign. You know, that kind of thing. And so what he's saying here is even the ultimate sign, someone coming back from the dead and warning you isn't going to be enough, which is to say all of these signs you're asking me for, we both know they're not going to convince anybody comment was, what about all the Jews that have been blinded so that the Gentiles can come in? I don't know. These folks that he's talking to and talking against are superficially righteous, internally corrupt. That's who he's talking to in this parable. I am going to make an assumption without any scriptural support that those who have been blinded are not necessarily unrighteous. So I'm not assuming that those who are blinded, quote-unquote, are also the unrighteous crowd that he's talking about here. The other one then, which I very much like, is Moses and the prophets are all you need. said what I just said didactically. I'm not in any way discounting the Messiah. What I'm saying is, Moses gives you everything you need. The thing that Yeshua gives you is the forgiveness of willful sin. Because there's nothing in Moses and the prophets that deals with willful sin. Sin of rebellion, if you will. Yeshua's sacrifice does that. So, he is entirely necessary but you don't need to understand his teaching in order to get there. Moses has got everything you need because he doesn't do anything that isn't in Moses. 
is preaching is Moses. In fact, I heard a preacher one time saying, oh, no, 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 you can't listen to Yeshua, Jesus, as he called him. Jesus taught the law. You don't want to listen to him. You don't want anything to do with that old law. So you can't depend on Jesus for theological arguments because Jesus was teaching the law. You got to go to Paul in order to understand what's going on. And that's the spirit I am speaking of in here when I say Moses has everything you need because Yeshua himself taught Moses. And the thing that Yeshua brings that Moses couldn't bring is the sacrifice that covers willful sin. That Moses couldn't do. And he says here, listen to Moses. That's all you need. And oh, by the way, then his sacrifice will cover for the sins that Moses doesn't cover for. There's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that's repented than a hundred righteous. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with being one of the hundred righteous. It's just that the one who finally turns around is, all right, shepherd finding his lost sheep, all of that. All of which, by the way, is not to say that you should live a rotten life right up until the end and then repent. That's not a good strategy. According to the Dallas Theological Seminary, perhaps Yeshua picked the name Lazarus because it is the Greek form of the Hebrew name, which means God the helper. The Hebrew version is Eleazar, the Greek version is Lazarus. And then, of course, he does, in fact, raise Lazarus from the dead later on. Oh, 